Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you're involved in politics or journalism in Washington, then you most likely know Mark Murray, the senior political editor for NBC News. Mark has been a presence around Washington for two decades, is a man who is incredibly knowledgeable about the granular details of American politics, the races, the polling, and the prospects for the future. He's also been a fellow at the Institute of Politics this spring. We got a chance to sit down the other day to talk about Donald Trump, the midterm elections, and the state of American politics. Mark Murray, a senior political editor of NBC News, and more importantly to me, fellow at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics this spring. We got a lot of politics to talk about, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll get to that. But I want to get to how you got to where you are, a recognized national savant about uh, electoral politics, and it began in McAllen, Texas. That's where I grew up, David. And first, let me just say, it's been an amazing experience being at the University of Chicago with your students to have like the regular interaction, the office hours, and the seminars. And this has been very good for me to get away from Washington for a little yes. bit and interact with all. I the can students. only imagine it's it's been it's hit the exact sweet <laughs> spot for me. It also makes you hopeful, you know, to talk to these to spend time with these kids, you know, who are not. They're not cynical. They're skeptical, but they're not cynical. And they really care about the world. And they are super informed, too. The questions are, have been amazing. But you are right. I grew up in McAllen, Texas, eight miles away from the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, and, you know, in these debates about NAFTA, McAllen, Texas has been one of the NAFTA success stories, where the population when I grew up was about fifty or 60,000, and now it's more than uh, 150,000, 160,000. In fact, the county, Hidalgo County, is one of the fastest-growing counties in Texas and also the United States. And uh, after growing up in McAllen, Texas, I went to the University of Texas. Well, let's, uh, let's just stop at McAllen for a second. You know, the, the, the thing that sticks in my mind is uh, Atul Gawande wrote mm-hmm. a book about uh, health care, and uh, he spent a lot of time in McAllen, and he talked about disparities. McAllen is now uh, uh, overwhelmingly Hispanic. It's overwhelming. It's about 80% Latino. And uh, to me, it was a fascinating place to grow up because of that. Uh, and uh, you are exactly right. During the health care debates, and this was flagged by even President Obama in many uh, speeches that he ended up giving, where all of a sudden, a lot of the deliverable health care services were so much more expensive. And so some of the things that are actually put in the Affordable Care Act were meant to actually keep down the prices that not, you shouldn't get three or four uh, CAT scans or MRIs, that they were over-subscribing uh, things to people. And uh, that uh, New Yorker article really kicked off an interesting it conversation. Was, because what he did was he, he compared McGallan to a nearby community. El, El Paso that yeah. had this similar uh, demographic makeup. Yeah, 
but but different results. And he, he you know, that made no sense. And it talked the distortions in the system were there. So you, but you had like a Friday night lights experience down there high school football man it's big in texas it's a big in texas now it's not as in south texas it's not as competitive in places like houston or san antonio or even in austin so how many people would show up at a football game sometimes close to fifteen thousand people and this is in south texas and i I still tell people to this day the most nerve-wracking experiences i've had in my life were showing up at those games in front of all those people as opposed to actually ever going on because you were a running back i I was Mm -hmm. uh uh though i think i'm been a much better journalist than a, a running back. Well, it's football. safer to be a sports writer than to be a yeah. combatant. I might argue the last year and a half uh, might question what <laughs> safer nowadays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you had a chance to go to uh, out of state uh, to an Ivy League school or something, but you went to uh, you stayed at UT. And uh, I was. A third-generation Texas Longhorn. I looked around for some places to maybe go and play some football, but I'm, I'm fundamentally uh, a burnt orange guy. My brother went to the University of Texas as well, too. And I went there, studied political science, history. You always were interested in politics? That was my that was my foundation. And Why? Uh, conversations with my dad, uh, just talking about the 1960s and 1970s, World War II, Civil War. and So he was a big buff. B- b- big buff, big history buff. And I always just uh, just took it from him. And, and Hildago that- County, I, I remember in, in uh, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but in uh, Cairo's book about Lyndon Johnson, that played a big role in his landslide 200 vote Victories. There's been some interesting politics in South Texas. And yes, you're <laughs> actually right. In the LBJ and his run for the Senate, uh, there was maybe some shenanigans by some folks. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, so... I went to the University of Texas, and it, but it wasn't until my junior year in school where I got interested in journalism. I went to go write for the Daily Texan, which at the time was either the eighth or ninth largest newspaper yeah, in the state of Texas. Huge, it's a huge school. It's Therefore, a big school. Therefore, it's a huge Circulation, paper, yeah. yeah. And what made you decide to do that? Uh, basically, because I wanted something else on my resume. And I, by that time, I'd kind of gotten college under wraps, was making some pretty good grades and wanted to expand my resume and start thinking about what I wanted to do beyond just enjoying my history and political science courses. And walked in, loved to write, and that turned into an internship out in San Francisco. And then an internship at Mother Jones. Mother Jones, an internship at uh, Harper's Magazine in New York City. And then my first gig as a 22, 23-year-old writer at National Journal Magazine and got hired three weeks before the Monica Lewinsky story took yeah. off. What did, the, uh, what did the early reporting experience at UT? And Mother Jones, is, that, that must have been a bit of a culture uh, shift for you. It, it was interesting being a Texan and never spending a whole lot of time other than family vacations outside of the state of Texas. Probably not and a lot of Longhorns at the there Mother were Jones some Longhorns though. at Mother Jones, but it was it was mainly me just kind of getting adjusted to a big city. And from a journalism standpoint, you know, when I was started out the school newspaper, I wasn't a, a straight news reporter. I was actually a com- columnist. But what I ended up doing at Mother Jones, I was the fact checker for a lot of their magazine pieces, particularly the political ones. So I had to pick up the phone, fact, uh, fact the checks, uh, check the facts, do all of that stuff. And um, uh, that really started me on my reporting career. Yeah, fact checking, that's a 
That's a quaint thing. It's important for all of us to do. I still go back more to more important now, maybe than ever. I go back to every story I write and I underline every fact that I have an assertion in the story and make sure that I double or triple check it before I hit send. So you you did you always know that you wanted to end up in Washington? By the time that I think the internships and particularly my last internship at Harper's Magazine, I desperately wanted to go to Washington. And it was all about how I could I could end up getting a reporting gig. And at the time, the New Republic was was the magazine by a lot of people that I ended up reading. And, uh, you know, that was out there, the, the Washington Monthly. Mm-hmm. I tried to get a job there and it didn't work out. But National Journal was hiring some new young reporters, people right out of school. And it turned out that the editor at Harper, Harper's Magazine, Lewis Lapham, called up the editor at National Journal and said, you got to hire this Mark Murray guy. The rest is history. I crashed on a friend's couch for about a month, got an apartment in D.C., and I've uh, been in Washington now for more than 20 years. And you mentioned that you came uh, in uh, in the midst of the Monica Lewinsky story. Did that immediately impact on you? Absolutely. And, you know, I kind of look back upon that experience and I see a lot of similarities between now and then. And certainly being at the federal courthouse and all the media scrums and what was actually going on in grand jury testimony. You know, David, we haven't really experienced a lot of those kind of courthouse drama stories in the last 20 years. And to see it play out again, you know, as it was in 1998, uh, I, I, it, it really did. It was very impressionable. There were some people who were doing some really good journalism back in 1988. I was working with Michael Kelly, who was at National Journal, Stuart Taylor, a legal writer, and working for him. Yeah. And so everybody was after the one big prize, and that was the impeachment and Monica Lewinsky story. What are you, um, looking back, you could date it back to Newt Gingrich and uh, his move to take over the House. It was a polarizing mm-hmm. event, not just taking over from Democrats, but taking it over from moderate uh, Republicans. Uh, And that led into the impeachment. Uh, And obviously in 2000, you saw this uh, very close election with your governor, George W. Bush, winning on the basis of a Mm -hmm. 5-4 vote of the Supreme Court. Uh, And we've gone from there. Um, how, How big was not just, I know you learned about covering scandal mm-hmm. from that moment. But what have all these things done to our politics? Oh, it's made things worse. And everything plays for keeps. You know, David, I think even looking back on that era in the 1990s, where obviously you had an impeachment and big battles, Travelgate and uh, uh, testimony from Paula Jones. I, I look back on it, even in that era, particularly when George W. Bush took over, that Democrats and Republicans might disagree on items one, two, three, or four, but they could actually work together on five, which might be education reform that George W. Bush was able to get done with Ted Kennedy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You look at transportation, and I was one of my first gigs at National Journal Magazine was covering transportation policy. And you had Bud Schuster, who was the powerful chairman uh, from Pennsylvania, who was at the House TNI committee. Um, You had people like Ray LaHood, who you know very well, who was on that committee. And those people worked together in a bipartisan partisan way. And so I do think that you are right that we saw some of the precedents playing out during that Gingrich era and maybe even right before Gingrich took over as speaker. But what has actually transpired today, I think, is fundamentally different than it was 20 years ago, where people don't agree on anything. Transportation policy, for example, is has become just stonewalled 
uh, and no one wants to be able to do anything, whether you might want to raise the gas tax or come together in a bipartisan agreement. So I think that yeah, this is at a time when there's all this evidence that our infrastructure is crumbling. Right. And so it's a really it's 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 a safety issue, but it's a competitiveness issue. I mean, there's so many compelling reasons that both Republicans and Democrats should want to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and another another factor in all this is, you know, even when Newt Gingrich was speaker, he wasn't the all-powerful speaker that we now actually see. You know, what you saw from Nancy Pelosi or John Boehner or Paul Ryan, where they get to really call who the committee chairs are. You know, going back to Bud Schuster again. He sometimes was able to run circles around Newt Gingrich and get what he wanted when uh, Gingrich disagreed. And so that era of, you know, having we, you, we can debate uh, pork barrel projects and earmarks. But there was kind of a system on these very powerful committee chairmen that sometimes was able to produce results and the results that we can't get into. Yeah, it's politics. interesting. What do you think about that? You know, I was one of the proponents for getting rid of earmarks. It seemed like a because there were they were there were these. Um, you know, the bridge to nowhere mm-hmm. and all of these projects that seemed to uh, be a big waste of money, but they weren't necessarily emblematic of the majority of projects. And they also were a lever that leaders could use to uh, to try and forge consensus. Right. I mean, they, they were sort of the oil that, that, that greased the... And I wonder now uh, whether that was a good thing. Yeah, well, and certainly to be able to get members to take tough votes. It became some kind of currency to be able to say, look, I know you want this bridge. Here's your able to get it if you can give me this vote. And people could sometimes say that that's potential corruption. It certainly has been very good politics for everyone to say that they're against earmarks. But to me, as a former transportation reporter, the argument that always sticks is people say, well, who should be making these decisions? Should it be Congress and members of Congress on their own districts? Or should it be the federal government that gets to dole out these things later on from yeah. the Department of Transportation or elsewhere? And what Congress has done is ceded those kind of projects to the federal government. Yeah. I mean, the answer you get is that uh, sometimes as well, you know, you, it should be done properly through the budget process and so on. But it really doesn't work that way. I just, you know, I mean, I, um, I wonder about many of the, ref- I mean, I consider, my, I'm a, a, a congenital reformer. Mm-hmm. That's how I've always been. And I, you know, reforming the party system, reforming uh, some of these boondoggles mm-hmm. and uh, reforming campaign finance, which desperately, you know, needs it in some ways. But there's always a sort of unintended effect that you don't that you don't see coming. Right. And one of the effects of this is I think it's further complicated the ability of party leaders within Congress and presidents to forge consensus. I agree. I still think the biggest force that kind of creates that that is a roadblock for consensus is just the nationalization of our politics and having Fox News and MSNBC and having those kind of where it's very hard for somebody who wants to cut a, cut a middle space to be able to do so. But I do agree that if I were ranking them, it might be that kind of nationalization. Our politics yeah. one, and then maybe earmarks two or three. Well, and then, look, I mean, I don't I don't even know how to rate them. I think it's an amalgam. Mm-hmm. Of things, uh, you know, it's redistricting is that's been beaten to death. Um, but 
but clearly, if you have districts in which you only have to worry about a primary, then your biggest concern about winning re-election is pleasing the most strident voices Absolutely. Uh, in your own party. Um, the, our media habits, for sure, and not just on television, but in terms of social media, uh, huge challenge because we set up these virtual reality universes in which we our opinions are always mm-hmm. affirmed. Um, that's a big piece of it. But um, uh, so, so you know, as <laughs> um, you wish that we would have a national discussion about this, you know. Uh, but we, we, we'll get back to this because some of this impacts on where we mm-hmm. are and where we're, we're going. Uh, you spent five years at the National Journal. I did. And uh, was it your intention to remain a, a print reporter? It was, and it was. It's all. I mean, my my favorite thing about journalism is being the writing and the crafting of you know. And it, it being at National Journal, this was twenty years ago when the media looked very different. But I was allowed by my editors to spend three weeks working on a five thousand word story, and so I could spend a day or two crafting the perfect lead. And I that kind of craftsmanship I've always liked in journalism more than sometimes even picking up the phone on. How do you tell the story? Who do you interview? Do you have all the facts straight? I go into Capitol Hill offices and interview with all the committee staff to get all the expertise from them before even writing my story. And uh, that, you know, to me is one of the biggest changes in journalism over the last 20 years where the three or four weeks I used to have on a story to write 5,000 word, I now have about 20 minutes to, yeah, to bust know, out a four or 500 word piece. I was just talking about this. Uh, I- just today, I met with a group of students from The Gate, which is the political journal here at the Institute of Politics, and most of them are aspiring journalists. We don't have a journalism school at the University of Chicago, so everything is, is sort of ad hoc, mm-hmm. and we're trying to encourage that as much as possible and see what we can do to help them uh, along. Uh, and I told them that, you know, uh, when I was a reporter uh, we had these quaint things called news cycles, and uh, news organizations were healthy and hearty enough to allow you the time mm-hmm. to do um, the reporting, the writing, uh, and the pressures under which reporters have to operate today, the competitive pressures. You've actually lived through that transition. It, it's, um, you know, I, I guess I have a hard time thinking of it as a healthy uh, transition. No. I, and in fact, I mean, to me, I think the biggest loss in how fast our news cycles have been, and one of the great things is that news is immediate. You get it instantly. Uh, it's a lot more diverse. There are new voices where you're not just getting the word of God from a, you know, a Walter, Cronkite. Wal- Walter Cronkite or, you know, even later, you know, Tom Brokaw that, you know, all of a sudden there's so you can get news from so many different other people. But to me, the biggest loss has just been perspective and context and also just memory where I think that a lot of times we forget what happened last week. And I've actually found a lot of my journalism that I've done and I do with Chuck Todd in our first read morning column is sometimes looking back. It just like 
let's putting together what, what the last week was just for perspective or what the last month or the last year has actually been uh, because I think those are the things that get lost and how fast everything happens as opposed to the days that I was, it was only about 10 years ago where big event happens, everyone covers it. Next day, you might have an, another analysis. Second day, the another analysis piece and people are still trying to get new developments. Now, all of those news cycles have been truncated into about a span of three or four hours. And, and the question on. is how much reflection can you really do in, in, in four hours? How much pr- perspective can you provide in four hours? It's, um, you know, but the failure to do it puts you behind in the competitive mm-hmm. cycle. It's, it's, it's hard. So you, uh, so what made you make you mention you're at NBC? We, I said that at the top, and you have been for 15 years. What made you decide to make that transition? So NBC, along with Tim Russert at the time, were kind of looking to bulk up its political unit heading into the 2004 election, and they were looking for someone with more of a print background and a reporting background and ended up getting the job. And to me at the time, it was like, well, should I go into this TV world? And what I've kind of found is that if you're kind of a good writer and a good thinker, you can thrive going from print journalism to, to TV. What made you, though, decide what tipped you in that direction? I think what tipped me and, you know, what I knew already, what was kind of told me was like, since we were going to have a political note that was going to come out early in the morning, I knew it was going to be longer hours and a, a more demanding job. But I think what really finally was just the challenge of changing my beats. And again, I was covering transportation and education policy, writing about immigration, the fate of labor, some politics. But really what tipped me to go work for NBC was covering the biggest story out there. And those were the presidential contests and mm-hmm. the political races. And, and they held that out. They ha- and I also, when I was at National Journal, I worked very closely with Charlie Cook and his team and got to see their whole mm-hmm. operation. And Charlie's always been a mentor of mine. And yeah. so to be able to well, kind many of people. what they do and be able to take a lot of that stuff over to NBC News. Tell me about Tim. You know, he was a friend of mine uh, and I revered him. Uh, and I think one of the things that he brought was the the passion and perspective of a practitioner uh, because he had been in politics before he got into uh, journalism. And so he treated it uh, with a kind of skepticism but also reverence uh, that was uh, contagious. Mm-hmm. He was he was a fantastic journalist, a great questioner, a, a tremendous leader, too. I mean, he, at the head of our Washington bureau, was just a boss everyone looked up to, where I've, I continue to have great leaders and bosses, but the aura around Tim was different than anyone else's. You know why? I, because he really was that great Sunday news journalist in the age where before everyone started getting their media from maybe more partisan media or how everything started getting split up. I mean, Tim was the person you turned in, tuned into on Sunday. And so everybody knew Tim Russert. And, but he was also so relatable. And, you know, he always talked about, you know, growing up in, in Buffalo. Big Russ, his dad, his the dad. Buffalo Bills, yeah. And just his command of sports. I remember my interview that I had with NBC at the time, first thing he, he talked to me about, and this was in 2003, and he said, so tell me about that Texas Longhorn point guard, TJ Ford, who at the time was the yeah. player of the year in college basketball. And we chatted sports 10 minutes before we started getting into the nitty gritty of the job interview. Interview, which made things much easier. And that's classic Tim Russert. Well, he was thoroughly authentic. Um, I remember uh, 
you know, I did his show a few times, uh, and uh, I remember uh, walking in for one of his shows, and uh, I, I was I must have been representing, I think. Uh, the Obama campaign, and I think Jeff Guerin was there, mm-hmm. the pollster representing the Clinton campaign. And I saw Tim walking to the studio before we were ushered in with a huge stack of papers under his arm. And he looked at me and said, are you ready? <laughs> and, and, that- and, 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 and you really felt it, man. You felt like he was going to put you to the test. And not in a kind of contentious uh, gratuitous way, but in a very substantive way. It was the challenge. And in a way, it was like a, a master chess player and someone preparing and taking the joy, not like I'm going to embarrass you and defeat you, but I'm here for the pure joy of the game. And that's really what Tim, yes, Tim absolutely. it was that sense of joy. He conveyed that. And, yeah. and for Democrats and Republicans and everyone, and you had to be on top of your game. And, you know, David, I also say, I remember my first few months on the job, in 2003 at NBC News, I went in for the first taping of Meet the Press that since I had been an employee. And it was that interview he did with Howard Dean, who at that time was starting to really take off in the yes. polls in that race. And Tim and Dean had an hour long debate and question and answer session. You couldn't, you don't have those at all anymore now. Yeah, and it wasn't really even until minute 40 that it started to get contentious between the two. And, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly close to Chuck Todd and NBC News and talking about how the formats have changed and our media has changed. But now you can't have those hour long discussions with a single politician, even if you end up getting the headliner like the president of the United States or a presidential nominee, you might the most might have 20 minutes. But back then, 15 years ago, you had 60 whole minutes with Howard Dean. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the last time I saw Tim was in Indianapolis in 2008. Obama was on his way to the nomination. And it was an hour long show. Um, and it was a rigorous, rigorous show. I also remember, by the way, uh, his uh, Senator Obama's interview with Tim in October of 2006. He had told Tim on Meet the Press the previous year that he wasn't going to run for office in 2000. Mm-hmm. And and eight, we were driving down to um, we were driving down from Philly uh, to. Uh, Washington to prep him for the show. Robert Gibbs and 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 uh, I were with him, uh, and uh, he. Uh, we said, you know, he's going to ask you. He's going to play the tape of you saying you weren't going to run, and he's going to ask you if that's still your position. What are you going to say? And we didn't know what he was going to say. And he said, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say I've changed my mind, uh, and I'm going to tell him why. And we're like, but we both shot a look at each other like, this is going to be big. And um, and Robert turned to uh, Obama and said, sir, have you, uh, have you mentioned this to Mrs. Obama? <laughs> and uh, Obama said, ooh, yeah, that's really, we should, I should. You should I tell should the, your wife before yeah. before, uh, before Tim, Tim. Russell. Russ. But you know what? He went. He did it. The question came up predictably. He answered honestly. And Tim called me the next day and he said, "No one's ever done that before." He says, "I've been doing this for what seventeen years, and no one's ever just said, you know what? I changed my mind.'" 
Well, we continue to play that clip because it's always a reminder when people say, well, I'm not really interested in running for the presidency. We know that you can end up changing your mind. And I remember that because Tim ended up expressing kind of a glee. You know, oftentimes there are two reactions you could have. You have the, aha, I've got you. Or the other hand, I have really big news that NBC News just has right now. So that's how that was. Well, uh, you know, I think there was actually a lesson in that uh, for all candidates for president, which is... Authenticity really matters. Mm-hmm. And when you go up there and you're plainly thinking about running for president and you pretend you're not, people sense that. You know, people, the camera does read that. Mm-hmm. And, and Tim was great at sort of um, torturing people who were playing that game. So uh, that was actually a really, there was a really interesting, uh, interesting exchange. So you you did get to cover uh, presidential politics uh, in 2004. Uh, what, what did you learn in that campaign? I learned that our our politics is divided and that even— How much you, were you traveling and how much were you in the office? So I was—my job at NBC News has always been the person who helps manage the people that we have on the bus. Uh, and so I'm usually there— resource to, hey, what's going on with the other campaign? What's the polling data out there? What are the questions I need to ask at these kind of gaggles? But my experience being out there, I was there, you know, throughout all the buildup to the Iowa caucuses, every debate that NBC News would end up happening. I was there helping to put together some of the questions uh, that we'd have for the primaries that were going on. And then, of course, all the conventions, all the general election debates that we'd be kind of live from. And after a while, even though I wasn't on the bus, I was going from debate, debate, site to site. Um, it was a whirlwind. And uh, to me, it was, given that was the first presidential race I got to cover, I thought it was amazing. But, you know, talk- you had covered Joe, you, you had you had spent some time, I guess, a few months at the Texas Observer when you were a young buck. And you you those were during the George W. Bush. Years. He so was, he was very familiar to you when he was governor. Yes. And so obviously, uh, you know, we Texans kind of know each other pretty well. Uh, uh, Signify in ways that others of us wouldn't understand. Correct. But because of 2004, so much of my coverage was more on that Democratic side. And this is what Democrats are going to have to play with in 2020, where you know the preponderance of the race is not the general election, but it's the primary battle that goes on. Yeah. And so we spent so much time. And really, to me, and one of the things that I've actually been doing through my seminars here at the University of Chicago, and one of my first introductions was on front-runner bias, and I talked to him about Howard Dean because when he actually started to take off in the polls, the really the race, not only from the candidates like Dick Gephardt and John Edwards who were trying to stop him, but it also became, you know, the, he was the not most— Not to scru- mention John Kerry. John Kerry. But he was the most—but but Dean was the most scrutinized candidate from everyone— uh, particularly the media, in my news organization, along with some of the help that I was able to do, we were the ones who stumbled upon Howard Dean making comments that criticized the caucus. In Canada, right? In Canada for uh, Canadian public television. Yeah. And we we had those tapes. Uh, it came out about two weeks before the Iowa caucuses. Memo to candidates, tapes that are made in Canada also can play in the U.S. They can, yes. and the uh, Dean campaign didn't know about those things, so they yeah. had to do some homework after the fact. But well, you know, there's an interesting parable about that, though. I mean, it is an interesting parable because uh, presidential races are like uh, pole vaulting. You know, you clear a lower height, and then it becomes more difficult and more difficult. Howard Dean was shot from a cannon, 
he went from a guy who really wasn't considered uh, a frontline candidate mm-hmm. for president uh, because of social media, because of um, the movement that he helped create uh, around the war. Uh, he he instantly became a he went from backbencher to frontrunner, mm-hmm. and with that comes enormous scrutiny. And if you're not ready for that test, uh, you know, you're going to break apart. That's right. And that to me has always been when we talk about front runner bias and the front runner scrutiny. If you want to be president of the United States and you can't keep it together and have to answer all the tough questions and the build up to Iowa, you're probably not going to do a really good job in the White House. And so I, I think there's a big rationale for why the front runner should get the this. preponderance of all the tough questions. But as I've told your students, it, we'd had videos, uh, Canadian interviews of, say, John Edwards or even Dennis Kucinich in that same race, they wouldn't have gotten near the attention that the ones of Howard Dean at that exact time did because he was ahead in the polls. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with you about the process. You know, I'm a defender of the process as crude and stupid and mm-hmm. trivial as it can be because it does expose these candidates to pressure. And the better they do, the more pressure they're exposed to. Mm-hmm. And you do get a sense. I learned about Barack Obama watching him as a candidate. And we had been friends for years before he ran for president. Uh, and he had been a client for several years before he ran for president. But I confess, I didn't know how he was going to deal with... I knew the I knew the pressures would come mm-hmm. because I'd been through these before. But he hadn't. And um, the truth is, he ran a Senate race here in Illinois. We did this together. And, uh, you know, Alan Keyes was 50 points behind him and got under his skin. And so I didn't know how he was going to handle all of that. It was kind of a revelation to see him handle pressure the way he did in the presidential race. And he grew Mm -hmm. in that process as well. But I do think, you know, he lost, as you remember, he won the Iowa caucuses in 2008 and then unexpectedly lost the New Hampshire primary. And I think in a sense, voters were saying, you know what, you're four years out of the Illinois State Senate. We're going to make you run the whole gauntlet here. Mm -hmm. We want to see how you deal with the whole deal before we give you the keys to the car. And I I think it was, you know, it was wise. Mm -hmm. But it was also when I look back upon that 2008 New Hampshire race, in my mind, and looking back at the 2016 election, um, and I've been talking to your students about this, and even the Democratic primary in Michigan, there's a reminder that we do have sometimes black swan elections that defy the polling, defy what, you know, we had come out of that 2004 election where, boy, if you end up winning Iowa and you have the momentum like John Man. Kerry did, well, you're going to end up winning New Hampshire. And sometimes those rules get broken. Well, and in fact, um, we made the same assumption and we, we entered uh, New Hampshire like a conquering army and we campaigned with hubris, mm-hmm. you know, big crowds, celebratory crowds, you know, uh, and and Hillary Clinton, having been humbled in Iowa for the first time in the whole campaign, got very close to the ground. Uh, her vulnerabilities were mm-hmm. clear, and she seemed much more con- uh, accessible, much more relatable. Uh, and so, you know, we... 
Most of the time in 2008, and the reason that Obama became president is that we resisted conventional thinking. But one of the bits of conventional thinking that we accepted was that if you win Iowa, New Hampshire's five days later, you'll probably win New Hampshire too. And we assumed too much. Well, and also the nature of it being an open presidential contest where, you know, George W. Bush was term limited. So New Hampshire voters could end up saying, you know what, we do want to kick the tires. We want this to play out longer, where in 2004, Democrats were facing a popular George W. Bush at the time after the Iraq war when that was popular. And they might say, hey, we need to end this primary season as soon as possible. And so there was probably well, more beyond, motivation. Beyond that, um, and I think these though, these are sort of back of brain judgments in certain ways. I don't know that people sit down there and think mm-hmm. as strategically as that. But they do make these sort of rough judgments mm-hmm. that are right. In 2004, of course, John Kerry was the senator from Massachusetts, which gave him a huge advantage in New Hampshire. It was thought that he couldn't win Iowa. When he won Iowa, I think the New Hampshire thing uh, was was there for him. And there was also that scream heard around the world, which is really the most first viral moment the in American scream, The Dean yeah. scream. And David, so I was at that. For those who don't remember, Howard Dean lost the Iowa caucuses after leading for uh, much of the uh, late fall. And uh, when the vote was tallied uh, and he came out and spoke, he was, fair to say, overwrought in a way that was a little bit uh, shocking. But I have a different perspective. So I was in that ballroom covering the the Dean uh, concession time finishing third. It was so loud and crazy at the time. And what happened was that the pool mic uh, ended up drowning out all the noise, blocked all the noise from the ballroom. Tom Harkin was three times or 10 times louder than Howard Dean was. And so it made it seem, you know, in the, if you were in the ballroom like I was, Dean didn't seem as odd as it came across on TV, which is a reminder yeah. for all candidates, always play more to the TV cameras than play to the ballroom at the time. But I always kind of, I remember coming back to the NBC workspace, there was Charlie Cook. And I said, he said, Mark, what'd you think of Howard Dean? I said, you know, I thought he gave a pretty good concession. He might be able to go into New Hampshire to save it. And he said, you, he was unhinged on TV. Yeah. And of course, being present in that ballroom versus seeing on TV, you had two different realities. Yeah, that's that. That's a really interesting lesson for candidates and also for advanced people. Yes. Uh, because he should have been forewarned. And I can make the argument, had that scream not have happened, Dean would have had at least a 50-50 shot of holding on to New Hampshire where he because was he was also, And he was also uh, from a neighboring state. Yeah, Vermont. Yeah. So uh, so you went on from 2004. Uh, talk about your own journey during those intervening years. Well, not only was it the great 2008 presidential contest, but my wife, uh, who at the time was Candy Crowley's producer at I CNN. I remember her well. And Sasha, Sa- Sasha and uh, I... Uh, got engaged and got married in the span of the two, the beginning of the 2007. You guys met on the trail? We met actually in the Dean ballroom. So two hours before the scream heard around the world, she came up to me and she said, hey, I think we had met you know, in a DC bar a few years earlier. We'd kind of talked about that, but it was right before that scream. Now, have you told Governor Dean so that he was the... Uh, my brother-in-law who... Something very, good came out of that disastrous so night? Chuck Todd, when he was at Hotline, wrote up that story and later... Later, my brother-in-law ran into Howard Dean and said, my sister and brother-in-law ended up getting married like right before your scream. And so he wrote 
down something. I was glad I could have provided some entertainment uh, <laughs> beforehand. But uh, it uh, uh, so but we covered the 2008 race as competitors. Me being at NBC and Sasha being at CNN. Uh, but the one nice thing was that uh, NBC and CNN often had a baby pool type of arrangement. So if we needed to actually share a camera for cost sharing reasons, NBC and CNN had a kind of a natural agreement. Oftentimes, Candy and Andrea Mitchell would kind of work together uh, uh, on a single camera. So I often used to say, you know, CNN was my always my second favorite network, particularly particularly when Sasha was there. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about 2016. Uh, I know that you've been reflective mm-hmm. about what might have been or should have been done in terms of covering that race. Um, talk about it from your perspective. What happened in terms of coverage? Because there was even uh, on, and I was sitting on a CNN set, and I was a purveyor of conventional mm-hmm. wisdom, so I'm not exempting myself from this. What is it that what happened in terms of the cover? I, mean, I have my own thoughts. Right. But- so, you know, we were talking about front-runner bias, whether it happened to Howard Dean in 2004, Barack Obama, even Hillary Clinton before Barack Obama won the Iowa caucuses, the front-runner gets the scrutiny. What I've really reflected on and through a lot of my reporting is that, you know, what was different about 2016 than all the other presidential races I've covered, and maybe also since you've been in presidential politics, is that one person was assumed that they were going to win and the other person was assumed they were going to lose. And even in your 2008 race, Barack Obama versus John McCain, there was a lot of coverage from my vantage point of, you know, John McCain was taken seriously. All of the tires were kicked. Uh, there was a sense of, well, will there be a Bradley type of effect? You know, how with the, the polls, can you really believe them? Despite George Bush's popularity, despite the Iraq war, despite the poll numbers that we were seeing. Bradley effect reference to Tom Bradley, who ran for governor of California in the 80s and was ahead in the polls and then lost. The theory being because of racial bias in the in the, in the polls and but, and, the electorate. and I, there was a lot of good journalism that was done in the 2016 election. I look at David Farenthold at the Washington Post, who won the Pulitzer Prize last year for his reporting on the 2016 race and the Trump Organization and the Trump Foundation uh, and so many must watch debates and, you know, clicks and views were at all time high in the 2016 race. But collectively, I think there was this view of Hillary Clinton's going to win. And Donald Trump's going to lose. And that actually ended up creating some disparities in coverage. And you look at some Harvard studies that show that the email story was the most covered story in the 2016 election. I personally think that it was a legitimate story to, for us to cover. But there are a lot of people who make some very good arguments that it was it shouldn't have been the number one story of 2016. You end up looking at how Donald Trump was able to dominate cable TV at his rallies, particularly very early on in the Republican primary season. Completely dominated them. And I I don't I mean, it, and, it, and I mean, both our both our networks uh, are culpable yeah. in that because he had the inspiration that if you light yourself on fire, people will come in and cover the fire. And, but, you know, if you're willing to. But early on, strap your asbestos on and do it again <laughs> and again. Early on when he was doing that, though, it was seen as entertainment rather than here is someone who's going to potentially win the Republican nomination or end up being president. And so I think but it does speak. It does speak, Mark, to the the the, um, the, 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 the tension in news organizations between <clears throat> being a public trust mm-hmm. and being a business and the business side 
demands that if there's something that might draw eyeballs to your heir, then you're going to go to it. And that's the thing that Trump counted on. And it competes with the other side, which is, are we overweighting coverage of one candidate because he's mm-hmm. in technicolor and the others are all in black and white? Or the other important coverage is that, you know, this is public accountability journalism. And it's the first test of before someone ends up getting in the White House. Mm-hmm. Can this person withstand the scrutiny? Does this person, do their businesses, do their behavior, do that actually need to have extra amount of scrutiny? Because that actually might, how you often campaign is how you govern. And that's always been how I think, you know, a lot of the good scrutiny that you end up seeing the campaign trail. But again, I think in 2016, there was a, an assumption where there's no way this guy is going to win. And David, also, the, one of the react- reasons that a lot of political reporters had that, it wasn't just conventional wisdom. When you're chatting with Republican sources, they were pretty much admitting the same they thing. Were. Now, even I argue in 2008 and 2012, we ended up, when we chat with you know both sides, we ended up hearing everyone's best argument. But when you were on the phone and people are saying, look, our poll numbers, we're probably not going to be able to win this race. We only have a 15% right. chance of winning. You take that at face oh, there's value. There's no doubt that going into election day that there was in the Trump camp itself profound the pro, a profound belief that he wasn't going to uh, going to win, but you know I wonder uh, how much Mark a part of it is that um, the media is generally aggregated in Washington, in New York, mm-hmm. on the coasts. Um, you know, I, I I was struck during the campaign. I think I must have said this here before, but um, that my neighbors in rural Michigan all had Trump signs in their yards. And my neighbors in downtown Chicago uh, were almost to a person for Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Neither could imagine the other candidate winning. And, um, uh, and in fact, I think that Trump did get the, some of the scrutiny that you're talking about late. But I, to some of his voters, it's it, it felt like and continues to this day to feel like you know, the elites piling on because Trump is challenging the status quo. Well, one other thing that I think we got right in 2016 was that we knew what Trump represented in the movement he had created. I mean, all of my colleagues who would be uh, at a Trump rally or event, I mean, we'd have the man- Sometimes at their own risk. At their own risk. But we interviewed all of Trump supporters and, and asked them what they thought and really knew where they were coming from. And those voices, to me, were very powerful. There was the assumption, however, that while Trump ended up having that powerful core committed base, that demographics for the elections, how we'd always seen, would kind of continue to play out again, that Hillary Clinton would be able to take the Barack Obama coalition and she had the better campaign, the better data, um, and that she was going to be able, even if the polls showed a two-point race, well, she was going to win by more than that. And, And I think that that was the assumption that continued to drive a lot of coverage. And when you talk about the Trump but, scrutiny. Yeah, I, I, it was wrong. By the, I mean, not, not wrong because of the result, but there were real questions to be raised about the campaign that they were running. The campaign they were running, that also argued to me one of the biggest shortcomings in our, our coverage collectively of Donald Trump is what would he end up doing with his business empire if he became president? You know, we asked all the questions and legitimate ones to Hillary Clinton. What are you going to do with the Clinton Foundation? And by August and September, they had had a plan to how you would actually wind it down and disassociate themselves from it. The similar 
tough questions really weren't ever asked about Trump's own business. Yeah, but I'm I'm not even sure how much of a difference it would make. I mean, we sit here and we record this conversation on, you know, tax day. Right. Two days after tax returns were due. Strikes me that another year is going to pass by where the president of the United States, in contravention of common practice, will not release his tax returns because he doesn't think the public should know. Uh, what his finances are or where he's making money or how or whether he's paying taxes, and he doesn't pay a penalty for that with his base. Mm-hmm. Correct. But it's always important to remember that when I look at data, that Trump base is about 35% of the electorate. And those, again, are the people who are going to support him no matter what. But his formula to be able to win and pull off the inside straight that he did on 2016 and to be able to win re-election, he's going to need to build that by 10 points more. He's yes. going to need to be at 46, 47. And so the kind of question becomes, how does he end up getting there? And that base just isn't enough. And when I currently look at his polling that's out there, he is speaking. You guys that. just had a poll. We did have a poll. We had his job approval rating at 39%. And when he is just talking to that 35%, you have there's an explanation on why why it is what it is, because he is not looking at the middle of the electorate. I'm sure when you were in the White House or having campaigns, you might end up saying, all right, who is the kind of swing voter and independent that we want to be able to kind of win over with this policy? Well, President Trump isn't making those kind of calculations in his yeah, White House. The, the, the reality, they would say, is there is no middle of the electorate, and it's really a battle about voter mobilization, and that when he's on the ballot, that he will, and when there's a choice, that he can mobilize his base more readily. Um, but he has an election in between that we should talk about in 2018, um, Democrats need 23 seats to take over the mm-hmm. House of Representatives. Uh, the Senate is uh, a 51-49 uh, Senate right now. 51-49. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, although there are barriers to Democrats that don't exist, uh, particularly on the House side, just give me your overview of where you think 2018 lies now and the tea leaves that you read in the elections that we've seen since 2016. So Democrats have the advantage of winning the House of Representatives uh, in 2018, but it's about the same kind of advantage that Hillary Clinton probably had going on Election Day 2016, which I think is a reminder for all of us covering it that it's not baked in that, you know. (laughs) For those of you who are listening, that's called a disclaimer. And, uh, you know, smart Republican strategists I speak with put their odds at about 40% of keeping the House of Representatives. So, you know, to me, if 40% is about Kevin Durant's chances of making a three-pointer, which are usually pretty good. So uh, I think you have to kind of keep so that in I mind. You have to bring up a Texas guy. Huh? Uh, he is, I, I make rooting uh-huh. for the Golden State Warriors this playoff season <laughs> because of Kevin Durant. Uh, but uh, Democrats have the advantage, but it's not a slam dunk. But when you talk about those races that we've seen already and what to me has been really fascinating, you can end up putting about on average 10 or 12 points on the Democratic performance in these special elections that we've seen versus what the performance was in 2016 for Hillary Clinton or even the past incumbent who had ended up running in that race. And so Democrats are really fired up. And this is even more pronounced in neutral environments, races that 
Republican and Democratic operatives aren't even paying attention to it from nationally. Like we ended up seeing that Wisconsin uh, Supreme, Supreme Court, Court race. Yeah, there were a million votes that were cast, I and mean, this was a statewide this is race. The recent race uh, where a Democrat won a Supreme Court seat by twelve points, and you did not see the big flood of Republican money that we ended up seeing, like in that Georgia six race last year, uh, or even the Pennsylvania eighteen race uh, earlier this year. And in that kind of environment where the national parties aren't paying that much attention to the national press corps, it hasn't become nationalized in a neutral type of environment. Democrats are way overperforming. Now, there are going to be so many races that Republicans are going to be able to nationalize in House, Senate, and even gubernatorial races, but you're not going to be able to do them everywhere, including some state legislative races, other races way down the ballot. And to me, that is the potential formula for a very big wave for Democrats. And the question is, can they just end up maximizing it? I mean, to me, I almost look at Election Day 2018 and Democrats' worst case scenario with the redistricting new redistricting map in Pennsylvania with the retirements worst case scenario democrats are going to pick up 15 to 18 20 house seats and maybe just be short of a house majority best case scenario they end up winning 40 or 50 house seats they end up flipping the united states senate they take over state legislatures across the country they get important governorships in ohio and in florida and that is what the wave is and this is what political strategists with the ad money with all the spending all the coverage and they own the candidates themselves have to determine where does this go? Is it the dim, dim plus 15 or is it dim plus 40 or plus 45? And that, that to me is the range. One of the interesting things is that uh, Republicans felt the tax bill would be their ticket to uh, tamping down democratic mm-hmm. gains. But uh, the tax bill itself is, has lost some popularity since it had, spiked up a little in right. uh, after its passage beyond that it's very hard to direct a campaign uh, around any particular issue when the president is so uh, undisciplined in his own messaging mm-hmm. and continually creates sideshows that uh, bring the focus back to him and his personality and uh Seems to me one of the issues in the fall is going to be: uh, Are you going to be, provide checks and balances or not? Well, and that's always been. I mean, midterms usually are about the person in office, and that was true for even Barack Obama mm-hmm. in 2010 and 2014. And a tried and true message is: Yes, I'll be a check and balance on this president. Uh, and so you you have that playing out. Uh, but Republicans. Uh, they t- always tell me that they needed to be able to pass the tax legislation because it, it, the worst case scenario, no matter where the polling is, and the polling isn't great on this tax bill, but had they done nothing yeah. with unified control of Washington, that that would have been a worst case scenario where not, voters would have said, well, what's the point of having Republicans in charge of the White House and Congress where we can't even pass something that was easily done in the George W. Bush years? And, you know, pa- passing taxes is in Republican DNA. When Why couldn't they end up doing that? So they had to get something done. But I would argue you're exactly right that that Trump, his the all the stories around him make it very difficult for Republicans. Yeah, Trump, Trump's all. 
But at the same time, sometimes the Trump trumping all makes it hard for Democratic candidates to get their message out. And that was certainly the case in 2016. Now, it might be a little bit different because not every House candidate's under the glare of the national spotlight. But Democrats to being able to make up their own economic arguments when the when the story of the day is Russia this, Russia that, uh, income return that, Stormy Daniels, whatever. But you, you see in... Uh the special in Pennsylvania where Connor Lamb was elected in a seat that would was, you know, clearly a seat that Republicans normally would have won or in Alabama, which mm-hmm. was extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm. You saw two candidates run races that were very much tailored to their uh, district, their state. Uh, that seems like a, a formula for uh, victory. We should point out that another element of this is that 41 Republican members of Congress have announced that they're not going to be running for their seats. It's easier to beat non-incumbents than incumbents. What did you make of Speaker Ryan's decision not to run? So two points, I mean, there were two. The first was it was yet another sign of how Trump has really taken over the Republican Party, although, of course, that shouldn't be a surprise because the president of the United States is head of that party. Mm -hmm. But because Ryan was diametrically opposed to Trump on so many key issues, whether it was entitlements and trade, Kind of, kind of a moralistic view of politics, and uh, uh, Paul Ryan and and Donald Trump were exact opposites. And Paul Ryan leaving kind of said something about the state of the Republican Party. But to me, it was also a statement about the midterm elections. Uh, he didn't ex- he didn't expect to be coming back as the speaker. Well, and even if if Republicans ended up getting the best case scenario that I was saying mm-hmm. that re- ungovernable right chamber Democrats only pick up fifteen or eighteen seats. Paul Ryan's job is so much worse, even in that kind of situation where you only can afford to lose four or five Republicans. He was already having a hard time when it was just being able to lose 18 or 20. Well, what happens when your margin is only three or four Republicans? And so it was going to be a difficult job. And David, Paul Ryan was also someone who didn't really ever want to be speaker. He kind of did it out of necessity. No one else was going to step up to the plate. And I think he decided this was always a short term. This was never going to be a career-long aspiration for him. And you add up the tough midterm environment. I think the very difficult thing of always having to answer for any kind of controversy that Donald Trump had ended up stepping into and knowing that this wasn't a dream job. And I think it made it easier to step away. I was surprised at the reaction that President Trump had, where he had a very congratulatory tweet. Because I, if I were the White House, I would have been because so many people interpret that waving the white flag. Well, there's Paul Ryan. He's already headed out the door. This midterm election is incredibly crucial for President Trump because Democrats in charge of the House of Representatives, that means that Elijah Cummings is head of the House Government. Adam Schiff is head of the House Intel Committee. And I think a lot of the things that the Obama White House ended up seeing transpire in 2015 and 2016 would would almost be the news. In other words, investigations. Investigations, Benghazi, all of that stuff would end up playing out in a cycle where we're beginning the president's re-election. We should just say we don't want to give the Senate short shrift. Democrats have a real task in the Senate just because they have 25, 26 seats up, Republicans just nine, and and, and, the, and, and, the and 10 of them are in states that Donald Trump uh, carried, some by significant margins like uh, Missouri and uh, uh, North Dakota and West Virginia and Indiana. So... Uh, it's a real uphill battle for Democrats to take the Senate. 
It, it is. Uh, and so the formula is for them that they need to be able to pick up at least two and then hold all their tough races. And that's from Heidi Heidkamp in North Dakota to Joe Manchin in West Virginia to be able to withstand. And this environment, at least for Democrats, is the best kind of situation they could have hoped for. If you were a Claire McCaskill or, or a Joe Manchin and Hillary Clinton had ended up winning in 2016, this was going to be a really tough environment for mm-hmm. you. So I kind of look at that Missouri Senate race as a pure 50-50 contest. And, you know, we'll, we'll see who ends up winning. Um, finally, what is the environment like for re- for reporters now uh, in this Trump era? You know, Chuck Todd, uh, who's been around for a long time and uh, does a, a, I think he's pretty tough on everybody, uh, came under fire from the president mm-hmm. in one of his tweets. I don't know whether you consider that an honor or a burden, call him Sleepy Chuck and, and so on. Um, how, how difficult is it? Some of your reporters at NBC have come under personal fire, certainly some at CNN. Um, how, what's the environment in the newsroom now? It's tough. You always, as a reporter, have to have a lot of dragon skin. I mean, we get criticized even before the Trump era by from anyone, and you have to be tough and end up believing in your own reporting. And of course, you know, you mentioned Chuck. He's a dear friend. He's a fantastic Sunday show host. He's tough on both sides. He's a, just a pleasure to work with. But to me, in this Trump era and where you can kind of call people names and always kind of declare things fake news, it really does damage our democracy. And while the, uh, you know, the news media in the fourth estate was never written into the United States Constitution, a strong and vibrant press, and I would think a tough press at the power that be and, and going and holding power accountable is incredibly important. And you look at places that actually aren't doing that anymore, whether it's Russia or Hungary, and you don't have a vibrant democracy anymore. And to me, what has really changed in the last year and a half or since President then candidate Trump was on the campaign trail is people saying, oh, well, that's fake news, or why should we end up believing you? And when you can't, when you when you uh, equate news organizations that do fantastic work, and sometimes we do mess up, to fake news, that is the Donald Trump was endorsed by the Pope and things that were made out of whole cloth from uh, factory mills in Romania. There is or, fake right, news. There is fake news. Journalists from NBC to CBS, the New York Times, the Washington Post, there's sometimes there's some stories that we do. We're infallible. You know, we, we, we can sometimes screw up, but... We're not fake. And and to me, to be able to have the president of the United States disagree with an article or or try to spin it and just call it fake news, it does a lot of damage. And I've been telling your students as well as f- future aspiring journalists that people like me, and one of the reasons I'm doing the seminars I'm doing is to be able to get as much trust back because we have so much work to do. And it's going to be it's going to take a lot of us. But for me to be able to put the state of journalism in a good place where the future Mark Murray's and Sasha Johnson's who are 22, 23 years old want to get in the business, we have a lot of work to do to be able to put them in a position to succeed. Well, Mark, uh, thank you for doing that. Thank you for the time you're spending here at the Institute of Politics. And thank you for fighting the good fight in terms of the role that the fourth estate has to play, shining a bright light in dark corners. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. 
And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.